When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi healers, it's Allison here. So I want to tell you a little bit more about how Taylor and I got started with our podcast and the platform we've been using, which is Anchor, has been so user-friendly and so amazing. I just want to tell anyone else out there that is thinking about starting a podcast, Anchor is the way to go. First of all, it's completely free. So hello. Second of all, there's so many creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It's crazy. I'm recording this right from my phone and it literally just looks like the record button on your videos or your Instagram. So it really is such a user-friendly platform. And the coolest thing is, is you can add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes too. And the possibilities are seriously endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never even seen before. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many other platforms. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And like I said, it's so user-friendly. I recommend Anchor. Go to anchor.fm to get started or the Anchor app. See you later, healers. Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Taylor. And together, we're the Anxiety Chicks. Each week, we will dive deep into a different topic about anxiety and the real-life experiences we all go through, while giving you all the top tools and tips you need for your journey to recovery. Our degrees may say therapist and dietitian, but together we are just real chicks on our own healing journeys too. Join us as we take you from panic to power and reduce the stigma of mental health. Remember, you're never alone and we're all in this together. Hi, healers. Allison here. So I want to talk to you all a little bit about one of our new sponsors, BetterHelp. I'm so excited to tell you about this online counseling platform because as a licensed therapist, I'm a huge advocate of mental health awareness and truly believe in providing affordable counseling services to anyone, anywhere. Let's face it, there's so many areas in the United States and around the world that can make it so difficult to find affordable counseling. And especially if you live in a more rural area, it can be really hard to find a counselor, which is why I love this online platform. BetterHelp is an online mental health healing platform that provides online counseling and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counseling service done securely online and is available worldwide. What's even better is that there are a number of different licensed counselors who specialize in all different areas of mental health. BetterHelp makes it so easy to log onto your account at any time and contact your therapist directly. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses and can schedule as many weekly video or phone sessions as you would like. 
As a therapist, I know that it's not always possible to find the right therapist for your needs, especially the very first time. So BetterHelp has actually made it so easy to facilitate great therapeutic matches. And if you don't find a connection with your first counselor, there's absolutely no charge to change counselors if you ever need to. How amazing is that? And if you find that you're struggling financially, they also have financial aid available. So we have a special offer for all Anxiety Chick listeners today. Sign up now and receive 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com slash the anxiety chicks. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash the anxiety chicks and join over 50. 500,000 people who are taking charge of healing their mental health with an experienced counselor today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the Anxiety Chicks podcast. I'm Allison Sepinara. And I'm Taylor. And we are so excited to be here with you on this anxiety healing journey once again. Uh, Taylor, how have you been doing? So I've just noticed my intro. It's just so, it just makes me cringe. Why? But just saying, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know. I go, and I'm Taylor. Like last time y'all called me a DJ. Oh my gosh. I love that though. We all look like DJs right now with our uh, right, headphones right. we have. Um, so you have a good week though. How's everything going yeah, from, from last week. week's good podcast? Week, I don't know. Did you need to decompress from last week's episode at all with the health anxiety or... Last week was that was a heavy podcast. I think I did let it go on into the week a little bit because I kind of had like a a bit of a stressful week last week and then I turned it all around. But yeah, I think it's a great episode if you haven't checked it out. Um, all about health anxiety. Um, if you struggle with that, yeah, it's for you. I've gotten so much good feedback on it. I don't know about you. I have too. I I mean, unbelievable feedback. I'm so happy to hear that everyone's been relating to what we've been saying. And I know, Taylor, like your story, um, so many people felt like they were able to connect with you with your story. So you know that part where I said, if I like got us all together in a room and like how we'd just be like little copies of each other. Yeah. Someone messaged me and was like, I feel that same way. Right? I know. Well, I just want to say I'm so proud of you for being able to be vulnerable, Taylor, to do that because it was very scary. Um, And it can be scary to go there for a lot of people. So if you were able to stick through the episode um, and just stick with us, I'm proud of you listeners as well. Um, It was heavy for me too. I felt like it was nice to kind of release all of what we talked about, but then I definitely needed to do some self-care the next day. So it helped. It was good. Um, But anyway, I'm so excited about today's episode, you guys, because I have a very special friend and colleague, I will say, because she is also a therapist. Um, And she is one of the first people I actually connected with over Instagram when I kind of started my platform and started getting a little bit more followers and Um, she's just, I started following her page and I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, she has so much information. I want to learn from her. And I was like, I need to have her on the podcast. Um, she also has an amazing podcast too, but I'll let her talk a little bit about that. Um, so without further ado, you want to jump, jump into it, Taylor? Yes. (laughs) Oh, me? Like, I want to jump into it, Taylor? You're like, uh, okay. I'm going to jump into it. Um, Okay. 
So we are here with Kimberly Quinlan. Okay. And she is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. And she is the founder of CBT School. It's an online psychoeducation platform that provides online courses for those with obsessive compulsive disorder and body-focused repetitive behaviors who do not have access to mental health care. I love that. Uh, Kimberly also is the host of Your Anxiety Toolkit podcast, which is a podcast aimed at providing mindfulness-based tools for anxiety, OCD, depression. And Kimberly, I want to ask you about this BFRBs. I actually don't know what that is, but welcome. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, no. So just just to feel that. So BFRB is a body-focused repetitive behavior. It's actually under the umbrella of OCD, but it's it basically is those who pick their skin compulsively or pull their hair out compulsively. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. And Wait, I, can yes. we pause? Oh my gosh. Kim, so I have a question. Is Are you Kimberly or Kim, by the way? I'm both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I should have asked first. But um, so would you consider like excessively scratching the scalp a part of that group? It can be depending okay. on the, the, the cause or the intention of the action. Okay. Sorry, I, I just it. had to pause for a second. No, and, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more, which is a really good question. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about um, OCD and obsessive compulsive disorder and kind of what creates the diagnosis. And again, everyone listening knows that you guys are here for educational purposes only. You know, we're not here to diagnose anybody on this podcast, but I'd love to hear from an expert who is um, a psychologist who kind of knows a little bit more about the symptoms related to it and kind of when when it gets um, more concerning for people to get treatment and kind of maybe just talk about the basics and when right. people maybe should should think about treatment. Of course, of course. So obsessive compulsive disorder involves both obsessions, which is thoughts that are repetitive and unwanted, usually very concerning and alarming, and the presence of compulsions, which are physical and mental behaviors we do to either remove or replace or take away um, or fight with the obsessions that you have. So an obsession isn't just a thought. It could be an intrusive thought, but it could also be an intrusive sensation, maybe an intrusive urge, maybe an intrusive um, you know, kind of feeling that you may feel. And what happens is it's think of it like it's on a spectrum. So, you know, there may be some people who have a light version of obsessions and compulsions and they're on sort of the lighter to um, middle area of the spectrum. And then as you move further to the other end of the spectrum, you would see that these obsessions and compulsions would interrupt with your daily life, your functioning, your quality of life. And at that point, that's when we look at wanting to encourage someone to get either 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 a diagnosis and or a a form of treatment. Um, And so usually by the time I see somebody, their obsessions and their compulsions have impacted their life um, and they're wanting to get help. Okay. So that's such a good description of, and that's actually, so I am, you know, and also a therapist and I work mostly with like generalized anxiety, but, um, I see I see a couple clients that um are diagnosed with obsessive compulsive but um not to like the extent that that you're describing. And so I can imagine that for someone living it 
it must be so just debilitating for them to not be able to kind of move on. Like if they have severe compulsions to not be able to move on to like with their daily life, if, unless they do some type of behaviors like that or something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of the big thing that we do a lot of education about right now is I think societally we think of OCD as like, oh, I like to be early for parties and I like to have my bedroom neat. And and that's that's what we would call perfectionism more like. But the how we really differentiate it is people who have obsessions and compulsions, it's incredibly painful. Um, most people say they feel like they're just, you know, they have no handle on on um, their thoughts and they're unable to control their thoughts and their behaviors. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very painful disorder to have. Yeah. So Kim, um, I think it's interesting how you say the thing about like people wanting to be early as like, you know, you hear those people be like, Oh, I'm so OCD or like just even being like clean, but it's like not to where it's going to bother them. So I like have a few people in my life I can think of that, like they know they're OCD and they like, my fiance's uh, grandma, like she know, like she had, like she can't leave her house unless she takes a fine comb and combs out the fringe in her carpet. Mm. And like, if she walks out the door, like she has to come back in to make sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I also wanted to touch on. So when I had health anxiety, when I was really struggling with it, do you often see people like that? Because I developed these compulsive things I would do, like checking my heart rate, checking my like SPO2, checking my blood pressure, and just a lot of checking. Like there's a lot of body Mm -hmm. checks with health anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering like if you often see that too. Well, statistically, those who have health anxiety commonly have a diagnosis of OCD as well. Not to say that everybody does, but that is very, very common. In fact, the way that um, in the OCD community, we actually place health anxiety under the umbrella of what we call an obsessive compulsive related disorder. Um, And BFRBs are also under that um, umbrella, you know, hair pulling and skin picking. Um, And so absolutely, they're very, very highly correlated. So that's so interesting because I never fully got the diagnosis of OCD, but why I brought up the scalp picking is because my mom will look at me and my fiance, they look at me and they're like, Taylor, stop scratching your scalp. And Mm -hmm. I just like, maybe I have moved on from the health anxiety component and am now doing these compulsive things in different ways. I don't know. But I, obviously it's not to where it's debilitating, but like sometimes my scalp will bleed. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, again, so with BFRBs, again, those are under the umbrella of a, what we call an obsessive compulsive related disorder. Um, again, it's on a spectrum as well. I mean, we all kind of pick our face at night or we may like, you know, look at blackheads and things like that or pick the split ends on our hair. Um, and we can put that within sort of, a, uh, I don't like to use the word normal, but within normal range. Um, but on a spectrum, there are people who do these behaviors to the point to where like you said, there is some impact to the quality of your health um, or that it takes up a tremendous degree of time and it impacts your relationships. But would you say it's not categorized as that until it's like you can't do it? Like I could like stop scratching my scalp and I'll be okay. But like I know I had a roommate freshman year. If she didn't like wash her hands six times, she truly felt like something bad was going to happen to her. Whereas like if I stop scratching my scalp, I'm okay. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing to remember here is it's very individual and it very much depends on the person too. So, you know, I once had a, a parent call and say, like, my child is obsessed with Legos. He has to play with them and he want, and you know, he has to have them lined up and he wants them to look this way. And the question we'll often ask is, is this impacting their life in a negative way or in a positive way? If there's really no, if the person feels like it's not a problem, like this young boy said, no, I love Legos. Uh, on, and I don't want to give them up. We would not diagnose them because it's not a it's not a mentally taking away from the quality of their life. Um, and so for you, I would I would not that I'm diagnosing you, but I think it very much depends on the person's intentions and what it does right. and how they experience it. I think that's just so hard for some people because you know, like I used to work with eating disorders and you sometimes get told like you're not severe enough or you're not. So this is just to everyone listening. Like, how do you know when it is time for you to get help? I guess you're saying when it starts to impact your quality of life. Yeah, no, like for me, I hate this whole idea of like that there's a split. This is why I have a hard time with diagnosis. Like, okay, if you do obsessions and compulsions for one hour, you qualify. Right. But some people, you know, find that doing it for 20 minutes is is painful enough and they want to seek help and they want help. And so I think it's very much dependent on the person. I think that there's no, I don't think anyone should be denied a diagnosis or treatment dependent on a time or how much it impacts them. It should be that, you know, I want to get better. And so therefore let's, let's do the good work. Yeah. So I um as I listen to this, I, I'm trying now I don't I don't think that I've really had any compulsions in my life or tendencies for that. Um thinking about my own anxiety, but I definitely have um sort of like coping mechanisms that I feel as though I can't if without them, I don't know how I would survive my anxiety kind of, if that makes sense. And I wonder mm-hmm. if, if, um, the, com- is the compulsions more of that type of mindset for someone in it? Like when they're really in it, it's almost like they have to do it mm-hmm. to get some like relief. Yeah. So, I mean, if we were to look at it through the lens of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what I do. And, and I know Alison, you, that you sort of, yeah, we look Mm -hmm. at a behavior, if it's a behavior to remove or, or to, um, sort of reduce discomfort, well then, yeah, we call it a compulsion, particularly if it's done in a very cyclical way. So you have to do it repetitively. And if you don't do it, you really struggle. But in the world of compassion, I'm a really, I love compassion-focused therapy. In the world of compassion-focused therapy, we actually call them safety behaviors, which is, everybody does safety behaviors. I mean, um, you know, whether you have OCD or health anxiety or panic disorder, or you have nothing, we all engage in what we call a safety behavior. So um, I think, again, the the way we differentiate between the two, an example might be, um, I don't. I have a man down the street that I don't really like, and I don't feel particularly safe around. So I might take the other route. That's a safety behavior that I engage in, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or bad. Um, it's a way I cope, and it's 
within a line that is healthy for me. But if I found that I was driving 30 miles out of the way to avoid that person and I had to do this repetitively and I didn't feel like I could drive down that street, well, then we would look at it through the lens of maybe it being a compulsion. Um, Compulsions, think about, I want you to sort of think about the brain of somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder is we know in the brain, if we were to do a, a scan of a person with OCD in their brain, we would see that there would be areas in the brain where they have a hard time inhibiting certain behaviors. And so you think of it through when I leave I personally do not have OCD. I've I've had my own share of mental health struggles, but when I leave the house, I can have the the obsession, did I lock the door, you know, is it the door armed and whatnot. But I can in I have this inhibitory you know, part of my brain that stops me from having to go back to the house. People with OCD sometimes have a weak link between the amygdala and that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which inhibits. There's, that's very weak. And so they struggle to be able to not go back and check. And then what they find themselves doing is repetitively going back and going back and going back and going back. Interesting. Okay. So this would be uh, by scan, a PET scan? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting, right? I know it's it's almost like they're you know when you think about the brain and you know you, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy, sort of like how so many of the thoughts that are intrusive that we have are like they have they give we feel like we give them so much power, like we really believe these thoughts mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. create this type of fear in us, right? And right. so it sounds like that's kind of related. Like those thoughts are so intrusive. They don't believe that they didn't lock the door or something, right? Or they don't believe right. that they did these things. So maybe they have to compulsively go back. Well, there's the two the, there's two components. So the the obsessional component is that they they have a really highly activated, easily activated amygdala, which is that's the part that sort of scans a room really quickly. And within this a millisecond, their brain can set off five alarms of possible dangers, right? So that's why they're having an increase in intrusive thoughts. Um, but then the reason they struggle to not stop doing the compulsions, like you said before, you're able to scratch your head and then stop. Um, Some people aren't able to stop because of that struggle or weakness in that inhibitory area of the brain. So there's two parts that have to be sort of chugging along at the same time to we, from what we understand so far in the brain for someone to sort of really feel stuck in obsessive compulsive disorder. Interesting. Okay. And have you seen like in your own practice and again, not I'm not sure if you know the research behind this, but um, are there? I mean, is is there certain medications that are are kind of helpful for for that? What you're talking about? It sounds mm-hmm. like, as far as a lot of kind of the wires that aren't necessarily um, regulated as much as they might be for someone with not that type of brain pattern. Right. Yeah. So the research shows that. Um, So the way that we sort of conceptualize it is if you had to compare and contrast cognitive behavioral therapy as the treatment or medication and SSRI at a high, high dose, not at a depressive dose, the statistics show that compulsory, you know, basically exposure and response prevention, which is the particular type of CBT we use for OCD, would be the, the better choice. 
However, what we found is if you combine medication and CBT, that is the the gold standard treatment for OCD. Um, ah. So yes, SSRIs are very effective at an OCD dose, not at a depression dose. Um, but I do encourage everyone to go speak with your doctor because every person is different. Um, we don't have a lot of information yet around um, around like CBD and THC, and that's very, very limited in the research right now. Um, but we also have some research to show that different doses of antipsychotics can also be very effective with people with OCD. Oh, interesting. That's awesome. And you just mentioned something that I was talking to Taylor about actually before we started recording called um, exposure and res- response prevention, the ERP. Mm-hmm. Can you Explain uh, to the listeners a little bit about what that is and kind of what that looks like. Sure, sure. So this is where I get really excited because I'm a super ERP. Yes. <laughs> so ERP is called exposure and response prevention. So I want you to think about cognitive behavioral therapy being an umbrella and underneath that umbrella are multiple different kinds of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, you might have Uh, treatments for depression, which are often more cognitive-based. You might have treatments for eating disorders, which are very even in terms of cognitive and behavioral. But in the terms of OCD, we actually place a much bigger emphasis on behavioral therapy, and we use exposure and response prevention. And what that means is we actually expose the person with OCD to their fear directly And then we have them practice not engaging in compulsive behaviors, whether that be physical behaviors or mental behaviors. Because sometimes the compulsions people are doing, you would never know they're doing it because they do it in their mind. Um, And so exposure and response prevention is a very short-term treatment. It's highly, highly effective. Um, And it's really fun because, well, it's fun for me. It's not fun for the client because ultimately they're work is to face their biggest fear. Oh my gosh. I can imagine that I can imagine that someone like knowing that that something is debilitating, right? That this is debilitating for their life, mm. but initially could feel so scared before starting or like really scared of of the process. Do you mm. find that? Oh, of course. I tell all of my clients, no one ever should want to come and see me because I am the representation of them having to do the hardest thing they've ever had to do in their whole life. But usually people come to us um, after having tried many different other kinds of therapy only to find that often it makes it worse. Um, And so by the time I see a client, they're, they're of course, naturally dreading treatment, but they're ready because they really want to take their life back from OCD. Um, and you will, and as much as that sounds crazy and scary, I say all the time to my, you know, my Instagram followers and my clients is the most empowering thing you will ever do in your entire life is to stare your fear in the face. It is the most incredibly empowering thing you'll ever do. And most people who have severe anxiety disorders have this underlying belief that they can't tolerate really high levels of anxiety, but they can. And once they learn that they can, there's this change in them where they're like, oh my God, I could do anything. If I can do that, I could do anything. And their whole sort of demeanor and mindset shifts. This is exactly what I did with my, I actually did this with panic disorder. So Mm -hmm, like when I would have a panic attack somewhere, I would 
label that place as bad and like that it caused my panic attack. So like, Mm -hmm. I remember I had a panic attack. I don't know if you know what PetSmart is, but it's literally a dog store. Shouldn't be a (laughs) panic place at all. And I could not go within like, I couldn't even park outside of a PetSmart because I Mm -hmm. would start to feel like all the symptoms, my heart would start racing, all that stuff. And so like, you're so right. It is so empowering to like walk. I remember that first time I walked back into a PetSmart and I was like, bring it on panic. Like, Mm. let's see it. And almost like when I like spoke at it, it was like nothing happened. And I was like, see, like you can go back because I got to the point where it was like, there was literally nowhere else for me to go because I had labeled everything as, Mm -hmm. oh, you had a panic attack there. You had a panic attack there. And it just gets so debilitating. Yeah, exactly. So, and what, and don't forget that even though ERP sounds super overwhelming, we also can empl- employ it using a gradual exposure model. So, you know, if it were you, for example, what we would do first is we would just pull up the website of PetSmart and go, wow, look at you. You can totally tolerate looking at a PetSmart. Okay, let's drive to the outside of the PetSmart. And then we would you know, celebrate that win. And then we would stand at the front door and then we would go in. And so you can do these. I mean, I I tell people, you don't even need to be in therapy per se to. Yeah. I was about to say, I did this all at home. (laughs) Yeah. You can put this model into, I mean, I do this with my very young children when little baby fears, my son was really freaked out about vomit. And so I, we play games and we make vomit noises and that's exposure and response prevention therapy. Wow, oh, that's awesome. That is so cool. I mean, I and you you mentioned something about being a more short term of type of therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my goal in as an ERP therapist is actually to teach you how to do it so that you can do it for the rest of your life on your own. We do, like I said to you, the brain of someone with an OCD related disorder is what we do know is there can be some relapses, right? There can be where you, you know, you overcome your fear of pet smart, but then you have a big panic attack on an airplane and then sort of the cycle can start. And so my job is actually just to teach you these core foundational skills um, so that you then feel like you don't need me anymore and you know what to do and you employ these skills in every situation as you can. You know, the message I try to give people is people, whether you have anxiety or not, is Go every day and find something that scares you and do it because you are actually training your brain to be a resilient brain. Um, and so, yeah, um, absolutely. I, I love I love your um, your motto on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. And, and what's your Instagram handle again? It's Kimberly Quinlan. But my my mom put an E or S extra letter in everybody's name in my family, so it's K I M B E R L E Y Quinlan. Okay. I love it. I love that your motto's um, you can do hard things or do hard things. It's a beautiful day to do hard things. Yes. It's a beautiful day to do (laughs) hard things. I love that. That seriously sticks with me all the time. And I mean, I'm a huge follow of your page, so I see all your stories and I see, and I just love that you, you have that somewhere because I even tell my clients that too. I always say, you know, it's a beautiful day to do hard things, you know? Right. Well, it, it wasn't on purpose. It just stuck. And what's really so cool is every day someone will email or, or message me and just say, 
you won't believe it. I was like, had to get on an airplane or I had to do take my kids on an excursion. And I thought of your motto and it totally got me onto the bus. You know what I mean? So it's really, it means a lot to me that people oh. find it helpful. That's awesome. I love it. I So I do have another question. I'm sorry, Taylor. I have so many questions. Oh, you're good. Um, but so a lot of what you talked about with ERP is it's very behavioral, you know, very action oriented. Is there any part of the treatment that does talk about, um, I don't know, maybe like the influence of the fear, you know, any experiences in the past that might have influenced the fear or the thoughts behind it at all? Or is it mostly just like action based and that way? That's a really great question. So, um, really in a simple answer is no, we, we don't spend barely any time looking at the past and past relationships, which can be really confusing for some people and some patients because they're used to that kind of therapy. Yeah. But because mindfulness tools are so crucial to be able to tolerate anxiety, um, we really encourage the, the person with obsessions and compulsions to practice being present. Um, and we find that and, and and this is sort of the case, is the average person here? I'm going back to statistics. Sorry, I'm a bit of a sciencey kind of geek, but <laughs> the average person with OCD, it takes between seven and fourteen years for them to be correctly diagnosed and find the correct treatment, okay. which is really devastating. And the reason for that is unfortunately, and and I'm not calling anybody out at all, but unfortunately, many clinicians spend a lot of time deep diving into the past. And what we find is that that ends up acting as a form of compulsion for the client, and it actually keeps them in the cycle of obsessions and compulsions. And so um, we actually, you know, in the OCD community, there is a lot of training and a lot of advocacy work around really just teaching the person to stay present, no matter what the feeling, no matter what the thought, just to be very present and to stay with it and practice making space for it in a compassionate way instead of trying to solve it. Because OCD is is fueled by uncertainty. If you're if you're trying to seek certainty, you can be certain that you're doing some kind of compulsion. And so we actually encourage them to sort of very much embrace uncertainty and lean into that as much as they can. Yeah. I what, mean. what do you often see an OCD misdiagnosis? So for like those 14 years, you said, what do the people normally get told? Well, Number one, the majority, you know, this is really important is, you know, I think the majority of our society believes that OCD is just hand washing and jumping over cracks and moving objects. And that's like, I think only about 20 and 30% of the population with OCD. The majority of people with OCD have obsessions that are very taboo in nature. They could be around being afraid that they've harmed someone or being afraid that they've committed a sin or being afraid that they don't love their partner enough. And it can show up in these really um, difficult, very shame-based ways. And, you know, harm harm obsessions are probably one of the most common obsessions that I treat, um, which is the fear that you may harm someone 
you have absolutely no desire to harm someone, but that you cannot stop that repetitive intrusive thought. What if you want to? What if you did? What would you do? What if you want to? What if you do? What what would it's just what if, what if, what if? Um, and so often people get misdiagnosed because our mental health community has not really been well trained in being able to diagnose those really kind of more taboo um, kinds of OCD. In fact, I'll be honest, when I went to my through my entire master's degree, not once did someone educate me about the different kinds of OCD. Um, so, wow. you know, I, I'm a perfect example of that. It wasn't until I became an intern at an OCD center that I learned these things. So, um, so I think that's a big part of it. And the other part of it is, um, unfortunately, um, we do, as a mental health community, get stuck once someone does present with these kind of more taboo themes and the person is courageous enough to bring it up, then it, they often spend, you know, I've had many clients say I spent four years and $100,000 doing psychology trying to figure out the root of the problem only to find out I had OCD the whole time, if that makes sense. No, that does. That's that's actually just very mind-opening because I don't know. I just – is it hereditary? Very. Okay. Yeah, so we don't, is the we don't PET know for scan, sure, but we know there's a very big genetic component. So the PET scan, because – I think that's crazy going back to that um, because they always said, oh, we can't ever see a mental illness. You can't test one is what I've always been told. So I find it mm -hmm. interesting that you say a PET scan can show one. Yes, but remember our brain is very neuroplastic. So the cool thing is, is that through treatment, after treatment, if we did a scan of your brain, you wouldn't be able to pick up that anymore. Um, you wouldn't be able to pick up the glucose metabolism that shows up in, in these links, um, which is so, so cool. Um, but that's why they don't um, yet feel like they can use it as a diagnostic tool because depending on the severity um, and where they've been treated um, and the interaction of other mental illnesses, um, you wouldn't be able to differentiate between the two. But so say everyone had to get a PET scan right when they like first started seeking help, wouldn't that help with misdiagnosis? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I don't really think I would be the best person to ask that. Yes. I mean, yes, it does contribute that. Yes, you could, um, you could use that, but I don't think it's in 100% of the people either. So I think they're, they're going to be, um, okay. less inclined to use it. It's funny. I was just yesterday at, at the suicidology conference. Um, and they were talking about the same thing is you, you could use some data to say it, but then once you, if you were to say, yes, this, this one thing is going to give you a diagnosis, then you run the risk of missing people. And then you run the risk of being ethically in trouble for misdiagnosing people. Cause the truth is, um, someone with health anxiety have, might have the same presentation in their brain or, um, with phobias or with, uh, social anxiety, the, the mechanisms of the brain can be similar. That's what I was actually just going to say um, about about the brain. I mean, there's it's not really, unfortunately, with a lot of mental illness, there's really no like cause and effect, right? Right. You know, like not not there is no A plus B equals C. You know, yeah. you, we have we have a diagnostic um, system 
from what we have with the DSM of symptoms that we can say this is what, you know, creates maybe a diagnosis. But even then, it's not like you see a brain. I mean, at least, again, I don't think I'm the person either. But what what it sounds like you're saying is like, if you see a brain that if you take a PET scan, you see a certain type of brain that might have these checkoffs that we can say, mm-hmm. oh, they have this and this. That doesn't necessarily mean they will have this level of OCD, right? Yeah, yeah. And you have to rule out other things. So think about the difference between OCD and OCPD is one person likes the behaviors and one person doesn't. There, But there's an overlap, right? So some people with OCD will also have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So let's say they had this test and it showed up, they might go, oh, it's 100% OCD without recognizing that there is some PD in there as well. Does that make sense? Like we have to be careful with just using that mode of, uh, for diagnosis reasons. So yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. I'm thinking my, my whole platform is about health anxiety. So I always go back to that, but I'm thinking about the people who constantly obsess over, like, they don't believe that it's anxiety. So if a PET scan could Mm. show like, Hey, our brain is kind of off. It is some type of mental health problem that would have really helped me back in the day. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because something with health anxiety is like, I want the evidence. Yes, but it, so I love what you're saying, but but what would be the concern about that is that for health anxiety, I see tons of people with health anxiety. And so let's say they have a really bad cough and they're convinced that they have a lung, some kind of lung cancer. And so of course the, you know, of course um, health anxiety is the same concept is the compulsion is all linked into the attempt to remove certainty, uncertainty, excuse me. And so what happens is they go down, they get a a MRI of their lungs or some kind of scan of their lungs and they get relief. But the relief only really lasts a little bit. And before they know it, they go, but what if the scan missed it? Or what if the doctor misread it? Or what if I got the wrong films and it wasn't even my result? That That's actually still going to show up in their life because the disorder is around uncertainty. So while, yes, it would be helpful, I my guess is that it would only be helpful for a very short period of time before the person questioned that again. I mean, yeah. You're a hundred percent right. <laughs> because I definitely, I definitely was that person. Yeah. It was my heart, and then something else. But right. I guess may- just maybe, maybe, maybe knowing that it was something mental. I don't know. You know, I- we could always say what if, but I but just I want- always have wished there was a way to just be like, this is what you have. I wonder right. though, even I wonder though, even if you had gotten that set from from a doctor, Taylor, like if someone yeah. had said this is what it is, whatever, if you would actually have believed that. You know, I mean, there's you're, so you're many exactly people. Exactly right. That I, I, I really don't, don't. The the way I explain it, and this is me getting to the nitty gritty of treatment, is I always say to clients, and I say it really firmly. I want you to imagine your treatment is exactly like one of those mazes on the back of a cereal box. You know, the one where you're like, you get your pen out and you go and you find your way through the maze, and you let's say you make a mistake and you get to a dead end, you turn around. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Treatment is exactly like that. If you are following uncertainty, 
you will 100% find yourself out of that maze and you will find recovery. But if at any point you choose certainty over uncertainty, you will run into a dead end and you will have to turn around and the only way out is through looking towards uncertainty. And that is the major concept of treatment for health anxiety, phobias, you know, OCD. Um, It's such a huge component of the treatment. So, you know, even though, yes, getting a PET scan would give you some relief, um, my guess is it would be very, very short-lived. Yeah. It's also like if you – just talking about uncertainty because I talk about it so much too with just generalized anxiety that – Honestly, nothing in life is certain except for this moment right now. Right. <laughs> I mean, nothing. In five minutes, you know, I could have that fear about my lung cancer and then everything's fine. And he says, you have anxiety and I work on that. And then two weeks later, I have, you know, another something happen with my lungs or something else that physically hurts me. And then there's something else in my brain that's mm-hmm. making me scared. So right. I think just we talk about the mindfulness piece and how important it is to really just right. try and train our brain to be in the present moment and and try and at least help ourselves feel safe in in the present moment because that really is what's going to be the most healing. Right, right. And to really look at it through the lens of being a little more savvy to the disorder. So, I mean, think of it through, I mean, I, I'll share with you a real story. I have a lesion in the back of my brain that they discovered last year. Um, and I go for routine MRIs. Um, there's not a day where I don't have a thought, right? What if it's growing, you know? And what if this is my last year of my life or I don't get to see my kid, blah, blah, blah. Like my what if thoughts love to go there, right? Um, But the thing for me to remember here is um, their thoughts. And, you know, until, until I engage with them, I can still let them just be thoughts, right? And the same goes for if let's say tomorrow, I have a headache, my brain's still going to go up. Oh, yep. This is, this is it. You're definitely, your time is ticking now. I still have to recognize their thoughts until I have evidence of, you know, anything I'm going to label them and observe them as my anxiety and as a thoughts. And, and that method can be really helpful at me not engaging in these big conversations around cancer and all blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Um, and that's a huge component of the work that I do. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm so sorry that oh, um, it's a great. I mean, the cool thing is, I say to clients, I've trained for this. <laughs> this is like, and it's the same with coronavirus. Like, it's like we've my lucky for us three and and the people who follow us. We've trained for this. We've been training for this for some time because anxiety looks just like coronavirus. It's scary and it's lots of uncertainty. And this is what we've been training for. Yeah. So I actually had another question. Do you often see um, OCD and autism get misdiagnosed? Very. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are some big differences in the presentation. Um, people with OCD don't usually have like the hand wringing um, and this and not commonly have the social impairment. Um, but yes, I mean, there's a very big overlap of compulsive behaviors. Um, so that's very, very much the very true. Um, but usually a really good psychiatrist and a good clinician can di- you know, differentiate and diagnose, you know, correctly if they're trained well. Right. Um, I only say this cause I was on TikTok the other day and 
geez, sometimes having too much internet internet access just isn't good because mm-hmm. there was this person on TikTok and it was like one of these songs. It's like, you got it. I know you've heard that one. And she was pointing to all these things and they were popping it up. And she was just like this person, like this girl, she looked very like, like a, just a normal person. And she was like, I found out at 30 years old, I'm autistic. And she was like, if you have this, 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 and this, and it was like all of these things. And I'm like, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> and, then at the end, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm autistic. I remember I texted right. my friend and I was like, I think I'm maybe possibly autistic. Right. And, you know, my friend's just like laughing at me. She's like, come on, Taylor. But like, it's like, you know, sometimes the internet can be so bad. Well, I mean, that's the case. I think, Alison, I'd be curious to know your experience of when you go through your master's degree and you do your diagnostic course and you go through the DSM and you're like, oh my God, I have all of these diagnoses. <laughs> like, I think that's very true. I, and that's where we get into trouble too with labels, I think. But yeah, no, right. I think it's a very collective right. experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, all the yeah, time. All- I Yeah. Oh, sorry, Alison. Yeah, go ahead. On that TikTok though, it said like compulsive behaviors. And I was just yeah. like, oh my gosh, this could be so many people. Yeah. Right. And now everyone's like researching autism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm, that's, that's, when I was going through my master's, I remember, yeah, I mean, all I was looking at was the DSM for like five hours every day. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, like uh, this is, you know, yeah, I have some of these and some of these, but I think you're right when it comes to like labels, you know, that's why I say so many disclaimers on my page and on this podcast that we're not here to diagnose anybody. We're here to educate. And, um, you know, I, I always encourage anyone who feels like they are ready to seek treatment or just go see a therapist. You don't have to have a certain number of symptoms or something to go see a therapist. You can be feeling overwhelmed one day and just make an appointment and it's okay to do that. You don't, you know, I give you permission right now to do that. You don't have to, <laughs> you know, wait for something to be horrible, you know, like in a way that, that it sounds so. Right. Yeah. And I will add to that, particularly in the OCD area, is if you're having thoughts that scare you, that are repetitive, that you feel don't line up with your values, but you think are the most repulsive thoughts you could imagine go and you know, don't be ashamed of that. Take that information to your medical doctor or to a therapist and tell them. Um, so many people of clients and people I meet will say that there was so much shame around their thoughts that they they didn't get help. And for years that held them back. So, you know, just know that OCD obsessions tend to be pretty repulsive and pretty graphic and pretty explicit. That is very, very true of many, many subtypes of OCD. Thank you so much. Well, this has been so amazing. Do you have any other questions, Taylor or Kimberly? No, I think just being honest to everyone listening, like I personally might be seeking treatment for some OCD tendencies, just like I think throughout my life, I never really focused on it. And I think looking back now, it's something I do need to bring myself to and allow myself to be like, hey, it's okay if you struggle. Because I I even was thinking, um, I've always been obsessed with like schedules and like following schedules. If things don't go as planned, it's like, can you have patterns of OCD like that change? Like as in like, so I chose my major based off of being so obsessed with like eating so clean Mm. that like, like, so I needed to do my major in nutrition because I felt like I needed to obsess over it a little bit more (laughs) and just always have that control. 
you just you just described my early 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did exactly the same thing. So there, yeah. there is a there under the umbrella. Just just um, forgive me. You can tell me to to, to quiet down in, if you like. Um, there is another under the umbrella of OCD is another diagnosis. It's actually under the umbrella of an eating disorder. It's called orthorexia. Um, orthorexia is the need to have a very clean. Um, very controlled diet, often very much related to nutrition and health, but usually um, it becomes very controlled and obsessive and compulsive. We have it underneath the OC um, umbrella as an obsessive compulsive um, related disorder. Um, and so, yes, the thing exactly, and there's no shame in that either. I mean, there's my clients are like the coolest, smartest, funniest people I know. So there's right. absolutely absolutely no shame in seeking help for obsessive compulsive symptoms. Um, oh but yes. my gosh, Kim, Pardon? I'm I'm mind blown right now. I was diagnosed with orthorexia, and no one ever told me that was a part of OCD. Yes, we we actually use exposure and response prevention for the treatment of orthorexia. It's something I specialize in, actually. Um, it's it's yeah. That's the that's oh the work we gosh. do. Yeah. I almost feel lied to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it isn't. That's the thing, and that's the problem with with diagnostics. It's actually under it's it's classified as an eating disorder, but um, the mechanics is a, is more related to obsessive compulsive disorder because um, many people who have orthorexia aren't doing it for weight reasons. Some do, um, but some do it purely just for. Um, the feeling of being not contaminated by food. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's okay. Anyone listening? I mean, you heard it here. So <laughs> yeah. There's, there's I mean, no I, shame. I would. I would consider myself a completely normal individual. I've even had people be like, "You have anxiety," and it's like, "Yes, normal people suffer with anxiety." There's so many people you know in this world that will never ever say that they struggle with something and they do in the dark. And so there's no shame in getting help. And these are two lovely therapists that are on here right now. So there is good therapists out there. So if you've been to a bad therapist, I feel you. (laughs) Um, Don't stop trying. I I love that, Taylor. Yeah. And remember, Taylor, also when you talk about or when anyone else listening to this, like there is no normal. Okay. So I have clients, I have people come in like, I'm, you know, I'm not normal or like, is this normal? Honestly, I don't even know what that word means anymore, to be honest, from a clinical perspective or from a personal Mm -hmm. perspective, because there's not one person, I don't even know what the definition of normal is. There isn't. It's like, Everyone has things they go through. Everyone has, you know, you think about different thoughts that you have and maybe there's thoughts that you've had if you're listening that you're just like, oh my God, I'd never want anyone to know that I had this thought right then. But like we have thoughts. We have 70,000 thoughts a day on average. I mean, it's like what is normal? None of us are. And what does that even mean? It doesn't matter. Like just be you and love you and make sure that you're kind to each other and please don't hate and just, you know, try and and find your best self and you have that in you even if you struggle with OCD or anxiety or panic disorder, you still have your best self in there and and you have like learning to love that part of yourself is sometimes the hardest part of it all. Right. 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 Well, unfortunately fear can be very shame filled 
you know, so that that makes it really difficult. I agree. I I, I think you're yeah. Again, the, the truth. I always. It's funny that I actually find therapists who disclose their own anxiety as being very beneficial because so often clients of mine will be like, "No kidding! Oh my gosh! Okay, I'm I'm not going to be so hard on myself if you struggle with this." So I think it's important that everyone understand. Right. Thank you for that. Yes. I, I don't know. know if you've listened to our podcast before, but I talked about one of I, – I think I did, didn't I, Allison? Talk about one of my experiences with uh, that therapist that sat there with her leg crossed and like I basically felt like I was the most unnormal person in the world <laughs> after I left that place. I was like, well, I messed up. I should probably go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I think that that is really unhelpful. I think that – we can normalize it. I, 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 as I explained to my therapist, I have anxiety every single day. It, but that doesn't mean it runs my day. It shows up every day, and and I, I don't actually think I think that will be how I will be forever. Um, it'll show up every day, and I'll say hi to it, and then we'll go about our day, and we'll do what we do. What we'll do it together. Yeah, I love that. On that note, I feel like that's a great a great way to kind of end this and wrap this up. But I am so thankful. Kim for you to come on here and I you've just given us so much more information to to Taylor and myself and yes. our listeners I am so excited I'd love for you to I mean come back on at some point if you'd like I mean yeah. it'd be so great I feel like it was so much information to give um I felt like Alice and I were sitting here like, are you going to talk? Do you have, I have a question. Do you have a question? Like, we both had so many questions. Did we just like quiz you for an hour? No, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I, my mission is to normalize a lot of these kinds of symptoms. So yeah, if, if ever you have any questions or you want to talk more about BFRBs even, just let me know. I'm, I love doing this. It's my favorite. Yeah. So please tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. So um, easiest place to find me is on Instagram. Like I said, Kimberly Quinlan. Um, you'll see me there. I usually just pop in at the end of my workday and sort of give a little bit of feedback about what other people seem to be working on. Um, and then you can also listen to the podcast, which is Your Anxiety Toolkit, and you can see me there. And it. if And do you have a private practice? I do, actually. So, of course, I have a private practice. I have seven therapists who work for me. So you can get me. You can find me at KimberlyQuinlanLMFT.com. Or if you're not in the state of California and you want to learn more about ERP in a course, like an e-course format, you can go to CBTSchool.com. I have uh, three different courses you can purchase, which basically just teaches you what I would do with you if I was in sessions with you. So it's, you know, pretty straightforward, just trying to give extra resources to people who don't have access to a cognitive behavioral therapist. And where did you say you're located? Sorry, you said out of state. Oh, where I'm in California. I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. So anyone listening, Los Angeles, California. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Awesome. Because well, I know you. Th therapists have the like, what? what is it? You can't have clients... Yeah. Out of state it, or how does that work for y'all? Unless um, it's um, it like mostly in we're licensed state by state, but you can get licensed. I think now actually though, I don't know if there's no. any reciprocity where you are, Kimberly, but um, for the telehealth. 
there's some yes. reciprocity around here. So yeah, I can treat in any state in which I'm licensed, um, which was California and I'm in the process of being licensed in two other states. But right now, because of COVID, most states have given 100% reciprocity. So for right now, you know, access to treatment is actually great. Wow. I Thank you for sharing that. I don't think most people knew that. Yeah. 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 Um, different every state. Um, some states are really strict, but then some states are like, oh, no problem. Come on in. Right. Do your, do your work. So yeah, it's great. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Great. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you so much again. This was so lovely and I'm so looking forward to connecting again at some point. So sure. please thank just you for trusting me. Of course. And just keep doing, doing, it's a beautiful day to do hard things, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Every single day. All right. Thanks a lot, Kimberly. Thanks, Kim. Bye. Hi, healers. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Anxiety Chicks with Taylor and I. As always, you can find us on Instagram. You can find me, Allison Sepinera, as the Anxiety Healer and Taylor as health underscore anxiety. And as always, you can check out the Anxiety Healing School. I just dropped a new course called When Panic Attacks, Triggers That Create Fear and How to Overcome Them, all about overcoming your anxious triggers and finding more awareness on what contributes to your anxious thoughts and giving you all the tools on how to overcome them. Uh, It's a self-paced course, and if there's any struggle with finances, there's a payment plan available as well, so go to theanxietyhealingschool.com to check that out, and as always, go to peakofpanic.com to check out updates about Taylor's blog and her journal she's coming out with. Thanks, everyone. Happy healing. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.